what I'm going to talk to, talk to you about is the results of the experiences of at least 50 medical justice doctors who have visited at least 1,200 people in immigration detention over about the past five years. According to repeated propaganda from the uh, <clears throat> Home Office, medical care in immigration detention is equal to the NHS. As I hope I'll be able to show you, that is not today's reality. That is tomorrow's nightmare. Because the issue is not making, uh, from a government perspective, making the model of care in detention equal to the health service. It is increasing the privatization of the health service to a degree using models based on what has been learned, if you can call it that, in detention. Okay, so let's start with a bit of medical ethics. Yeah, because that is critical to the problems that we see. And there are four basic principles of medical ethics, which are absolutely bog standard. Patient autonomy, uh, the right of the patient to just care, benefit to the patient, and first do no harm. In practice, this is translated into the duties of a doctor as defined by the General Medical Council. And uh, you, can, you can read this faster than I can speak it, yeah. But you will see that these derive basically from those four principles. You will also see in a minute that they are routinely, in fact, almost invariably violated in one way or another by the, in the experiences of detainees of the healthcare they receive. And this has practical consequences, not only for their health, but in many cases for their immigration cases. I would like to pose to you something that may bridge between the things we were hearing about this morning about the uh, biological and the social in relation to the patient. Because in a way, ultimately, the ultimate reduction of the human being to nothing but a body yeah, still leaves them in any situation other than a true concentration camp with some health rights. They are almost infinitely restricted, but they are real, and they are, and this is the important point, enforceable. And what we do is enforce them. So, the practice of human rights medicine gives rights to the patient and imposes duties on the doctor. And the patient has a right to expect competence, enough time with the doctor to be able to explore the issues that matter, honesty on the part of the clinician, and genuine concern for their well-being. Lovely quote from a colleague uh, who does a lot of visits to yours with Miriam Beeks at a conference. If it's not human rights medicine, it ain't medicine at all. The basis of the appalling care that we see, which I'll illustrate to you in a minute, is conflict of interest. The clinicians are subjected to dual loyalties. That is a situation in which there is a conflict between their duties to their patient and their perceived duties to their employer, and guess who wins? The contractors have a conflict between their duties to shareholder value and their duties of care. And sometimes you can even exploit the duties to shareholder value in ways that are beneficial either to individual patients or on a campaigning basis. A practical example of that occurred last week when the, uh, one of the older Muslim campaign groups who are very bothered about the fact 
that Serco are simultaneously providing security at Aldermaston and involved in developing the next generation nuclear weapons and advising the government on nuclear non-proliferation. There's a few one for you. Yeah. Anyway, they kindly gave me a share, so I went along. I also got, by the way, a check yesterday for 5p for my uh, 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 shareholder value. Yep, right. And what we were able to do was to pose the question to the chief executives, the detention of children is doing severe reputational harm to circle. Not that I care, but I didn't say so. Yep. What plans do you have to beg the government to release you from your contractual obligations to lock up children? The upshot of which was that Chris Hyman, who is the chief executive of that company, a very strange individual indeed, invited me to visit Yarlswood with him. I shall, on one condition, that he agrees to sit in on a consult with a willing patient who has been subjected to torture and who has scars to prove the point, so that he can see what it is he's really doing. And of course, the UKBA have a conflict between their mantras of firmer and faster on the one hand, and fairer on the other. Okay, let's talk about the doctors a minute and the nurses. What you see in detention is clinical negligence. There is no other term for it. Failure to take an adequate history. Were you tortured? Extreme example, however, straight up medical stuff. A woman transferred to Yarlswood, known epileptic, had been for 30 some years, on treatment for her epilepsy in prison where she was held for an identity offense, namely, fleeing torture with a false passport, and uh, who was being treated for epilepsy in prison, but who, when she wound up in Yarlswood, she wound up there without her notes, without her meds, and the notes read, claims, claims to be epileptic. She had four fits over a period of a month before they actually investigated the validity of her claim. What that goes to is the automatic assumption in far too many cases the patient is always lying in order to achieve some secondary gain. You cannot practice medicine on that basis. It can't be done. If you assume all your patients are lying, you cannot practice medicine. Failure to examine competently. One of the duties of doctors in detention centers which do not apply elsewhere is a duty to document unfitness for detention, for example, evidence of torture, because the detention center rules, which are the equivalent of the prison rules, impose that duty upon the doctor. And the uh, way it is done is through the operation of Rule 35, which requires the doctor to report to UKBA via various steps the, uh, those people of whom they have reason to believe they are victims of torture or otherwise only suitable for detention under very exceptional circumstances. Now, just to give you one example, a Rule 35 report that I saw on a patient from uh, Oakington, no scars, written down by the doctor inside. I counted 15. Examination clearly did not occur or was not honestly reported. Arranging investigations, the number of people that we've seen who have reason to believe they may be HIV positive and who need a test and don't get it is large, provide necessary treatment, Again, HIV, people detained without their antiretrovirals, which is exceedingly dangerous because it's a great way of breeding resistance to the only drug available in Africa. Because the first resistance you get when you stop your antiretrovirals is resistance to nephropathy. 
uh, failure to refer for a specialist opinion for all kinds of blatant stuff. Yeah? I mean, damage to a bile duct with intermittent jaundice, for Christ's sake. To arrange appropriate follow-up. Look at the discharge letter, if any, from yours. But bear in mind that over 50% of the children, probably 30% of all the detainees, maybe more, are eventually released, having spent very little periods of time, and medically probably deteriorated. Uh, and we've already talked about the former UKBA of unfitness to detention. Unfitness to fly is also an issue. And you find a situation where a nurse, and the nurses are usually more often directly employed by the companies, and also less, even less prone to any form of independent action from the doctors. And that is not a doctor-nurse position, that is simply an employment position. Uh, you know, shoving the note, please sign here, this patient is fit to fly. No, I won't get somebody else, somebody else will. Yeah, and they do. Yeah, right. And failure to challenge detention without medication, or failure to take patients to hospitals. Practical example, at Tinsley and Brookhouse near Gatwick, approximately 50% of patients were due to be taken to the HIV clinic, GOM clinic, at the local hospital, are not brought, because DECMO, which is the section of the UKBA which governs external transport, are not prepared to pay for more than two external visits per day. Okay. The correct technical description of this form of behavior is institutional medical abuse. There is no other appropriate term. What's driving Financial. Obviously, they, they want to push the patients through so as to minimize the doctor time they're paying for. So the average consult is less than five minutes. And when you consider in general practice, it's probably about eight. And we're talking about much more complicated situation in people who very often do not have English as their first language. And they're obviously trying to reduce the cost of medication and transport. And one lovely example of that is the way in which you find uh, Almost everybody is given either paracetamol or ibuprofen, including in the case of ibuprofen, somebody whose gastroscopy showed they had gastritis. You read the package insert on brufen, which you buy over the counter, it says, do not use the person's Yeah, And the notes read, gastroscopy shows erosive gastritis, continue ibuprofen. Okay? It's a nurse-led service, and I think I've mentioned a little bit about that. Uh, there is, yeah, right, uh, and there are a whole series of mechanisms by which practice is impaired, okay? Likewise, UKBA uh, do not comply with their policies and do not comply with their rules. I won't go into the details of that, yeah? It is important to concentrate, as we began to hear a little bit about in the morning, on the reactions of the patients or the detainees to their circumstances. Yeah? And the typical and appropriate response of a detainee to the health care they are receiving is fear, distrust, and hostility based on the very frequent racist, xenophobic, or otherwise hostile comments of the clinical staff. A number of patients have told me they said to me, that I had no right to be in this country, I had no rights at all, or the racist comments they made, I don't want to go there. Yep. And the final reaction, of course, is hunger strikes. Now, I've seen, and I'm just going to talk about my own patients now, I seem to be MJ's hunger strike specialist, how I started out this kind of work. 
I think now 25 people on what I would define as a serious hunger strike, by which I mean no food for more than 14 days or no fluids for more than 48 hours or both. The, the popular myths hold you can live for three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, and all of those are wrong. The longest time without food that I've seen is 41 days. Of these 25 people, every one of them, without exception, was allegedly end of process detained for removal. Every one of them, without exception, was protesting a lack of access to justice. That is what a real hunger strike is about. Of the first six whom I saw in summer of 2005, every single one has been granted status, and every single one has won or is in the process of winning compensation for wrongful detention. This rather strongly suggests that when a detainee goes on hunger strike and says, I've been denied access to justice, they are telling the literal truth. Of the other 19, two are still in detention, three have been removed, and all the rest have been released. But it is that and self-harm are the only means that detainees in some circumstances have to fight back or feel they have. The other thing to bear in mind is that the detention process in healthcare therein has fairly disastrous consequences for the NHS. First, although the Home Office pick up the tab for primary care and detention, secondary care, when a patient needs to go to hospital, for example, is the financial responsibility of the primary care trust locally, which means there's a competition for resources. When Yarlswood was first built, Alistair Burke extracted a promise, he's the local MP, from the Home Office that there would be no additional costs upon the, uh, what was the predecessor of the Primary Care Trust uh, as a result of the presence of Yarlswood in that constituency. This promise has been totally dishonored. In fact, one patient of mine, one of the six I was talking about, who is rather well known because she's case A in the health care inquiry into Yarlswood by the uh, inspector prisons, wound up spending six months in the Maudsley to recover from her experiences at a cost of local primary care trust, according to the local press, of £50,000. There are ethical deformities imposed by this kind of practice. When detainees are taken to hospital in this country, if they are male, they are invariably, or almost invariably, handcuffed to a guard who refuses to leave the room. Under both medical ethics and law, as far as I know, if the doctor demands the absence of the guard and the removal of the shackles so that examination can occur, this must happen. It does not. Partly because the doctor is a coward, partly because the guards refuse when the doctors are not coward. It's something we need to legally challenge soon. Yeah? Privatization, Serco and G4S, who run the majority of the privatized detention centers in this country, other than those run by GEO, which is otherwise known as Corrections Corporation of America, or indeed Wackenhut, which is what it originally was. Uh, but Serco run polyclinics and out-of-hours care for general practices in the NHS. G4S are running ambulance services. And finally, there is a process of blame-shifting. It's his fault. Yeah? Okay, you can outsource your clinical services, or it's physically possible to do so, you cannot outsource your ethics. What can we do? Well, this is what we do do, medical legal reports, enforcing adequate care, documentation of evidence of assault.
Uh, we have a process of referral. We have to be slightly bureaucratic about it. We try and keep it to an absolute minimum. So that when somebody sees a person in detention, a visitor from, say, one of the Association of Visitor and Detention Groups, uh, they will refer using a standard form which gives us the information we need. Uh, we hope to find there's a lawyer involved for all kinds of good reasons, yeah, and we will identify a clinician who can go in and see them, hopefully with the appropriate expertise. For that very good reason, for example, I tend, as best I can, to avoid seeing children. My pediatrics is weak. On the other hand, better me than nothing. Okay? Second thing we do is enforcement. Yeah? Although we haven't called it that much yet. It, that can be the reporting of a doctor or a nurse to their regulatory bodies, the GNC or the Nursing and Midwifery Council. And people keep asking us again and again, why do you not do more of this? And my own personal case, the reason is it would be perceived as revenge. Because after I saw three hunger strikers at Colnebrook in 06, no, 06, Oh, six, yeah. The uh, manager of the center and his wife, the medical center manager, I think that's a lovely example of governance, yeah, reported me to the GMC with a demand that I be struck off. It, for me now to report them will be seen as revenge, but, you know, okay. You'll be pleased to know, by the way, that the GMC eventually held that giving potentially life saving advice to a patient does not violate the duties of a doctor even if it is politically or commercially inconvenient. A relief, that one. Yeah. You can go to the, the Care Quality Commission, although that requires that these centres be registered with them, and that hasn't happened. For the Parliamentary Ombudsman, you can probably do it. We haven't tried it yet. Obviously, many cases through the court and other legal challenges. Finally, you can put a Band-Aid on a spurting artery. The point is to stop the bleeding. Yeah, and that means putting a stop to detention. Clearly, that is not within our power. It may be within the grasp of the NGOs and the campaigners in general to put a stop to the detention of children in the very near future, and this we will attempt to do. Yeah. And we use questions in the House, MPs or peers' letters to stop removal, occasionally early day motions, information for debates, meetings and negotiations with UK borders and ministers, which is somewhat bizarre experience, as you can imagine. Yeah? And finally, using the media. But don't hold your breath. Okay? Final slide. We see things as a staged process. On our website, <coughs> objectives include to end the medical abuse of detainees and the damaging effects of immigration detention on their health. And that means ending immigration detention. Obviously, we're not going to get there immediately, and we have a series of staged objectives. I urge you to consider that what is being done to detainees today will, in a sense, be done to you and yours in the future if you are not careful. For the very simple reason that the minute you start trying to outsource health care along the lines of this model, you have an infinite system of a chamber of merits in which it's always somebody else's responsibility and you cannot actually nailed them down to the point of saying, well, actually, that was wrong. It must stop. Anyway, thank you very much.